You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. My name is David Guzik, and if we've never been introduced before, I'm a Bible teacher. I'm a pastor. Uh, I have a commentary through the entire Bible that's available completely free online at places like EnduringWord.com. That's my own website. And then also Blue Letter Bible, blb.org. Blue Letter Bible is a tremendous Bible resource. Every Thursday afternoon, whenever I'm able to, we get together for a live time of question and answer where basically I start off with a lead question that comes in through email or by a comment on a YouTube video or social media or something like that. I begin with a chosen lead question, and then we just take whatever questions we can get to in the side chat window. So very pleased you could join me today. And I just want to say hi. One of the things I really enjoy about these times every week is that we really get to meet with people from all over the world. We get people from many different continents and countries that are able to join us for this time. And that's one of the reasons why I do it at noon on Thursdays, Pacific noon Pacific time for me. Uh, I do it at that time so that our European guests can join us a little more easily for the live question and answer. On today's question and answer program, I want to begin with this question that came in from Jessica. Here's the question. Uh, I, I summarized it with this phrase, can we hinder the word of God? But let me read to you Jessica's brief question. She says this, uh, on your teaching being doers, not hearers only from James chapter one, by the way, that's third in my James series on the YouTube channel. She says, on your teaching, being doers, not only hearers, can you elaborate on our responsibility not to hinder the power of the word of God? And she mentions that I speak of it at uh, almost 16 minutes into the video. So again, if you're interested in the video that prompted Jessica's question, you can find it on the YouTube channel. Just look for the playlist on the series through James, and it is the third in that series. Uh, that's a series where I just taught through the book of James right here in my little home office. And uh, we just went through the book of James verse by verse, uh, as I've been doing for my YouTube viewers. But here, I, I want to get to this question, because I think it's a great question that Jessica asks. Here it is, just simply this. Can we hinder the word of God? Now, like several areas of biblical truth, this something of a complicated answer, because the Bible speaks about this in at least two ways. Let me explain to you what I mean. There are some passages that speak of the fact that God's word can't be hindered and that God's word will always accomplish God's purpose. One of the most familiar verses to many people about this idea of the the um, fact that God's word will always accomplish its purpose is taken from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. And let me read those two verses to you. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. We read this. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, 
so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper for the thing for which I sent it. You see here, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah used this beautiful analogy uh, between the, the water cycle that waters the earth. You know, there's condensation from the clouds. It comes down. It does the work that God intends on the earth. And then it's carried back up by water vapor up to the clouds. Again, it's this beautiful cycle that brings forth uh, fruitfulness and, and vegetation on the earth that, that supplies the entire world with food to eat. God says, in the same way, my word that goes forth from my mouth, God says, verse 11, Isaiah 55, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. Again, a very strong statement that, that would indicate, listen, God's word is going to do its work. And, and this is just an expression of the wonderful power of God. Then again, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, Jesus said this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. By the way, what a remarkable thing for any man who walked this earth to say. This is one of the many reasons why we believe and we know that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who walked this earth, he was and is God. Now, we know that that's an astounding statement to make, that someone who had flesh and blood and walked this earth, and if we were to meet him on the earth today as he was back then, uh, he would seem physically and around him to be a normal man. But that man was, in fact, God. And Jesus' deity was expressed so many ways. But one of them was he said, again, I'll read this statement to you. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will by no means pass away. In other words, God's word is eternal. It's, it's fixed. It'll accomplish everything that God has intended for it. And then I'll just read you one other statement. I could find many. I'm just giving you three examples of statements that seem to indicate to us that God's word will always accomplish its purpose. Second Timothy chapter two, verse nine, Paul said this, the word of God is not chained. The contrast there, of course, was that Paul was in Roman imprisonment as he wrote that letter of 2 Timothy. Paul was in chains, but the word of God is not chained. So again, these are examples of passages of scripture that speak to us of the one aspect. The aspect we know, we understand, God's word is mighty, it's eternal, it's powerful, it's not chained. It will fulfill every purpose that God has for it. Now, on the other side, there are other passages that speak of the potential of human resistance, uh, the, the activity or rebellion of human beings hindering the work of God's word in some way. For example, in Mark chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day, and he said this, you are making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. Again, that's a startling statement. Jesus said to the religious leaders that they were making the word of God of no effect. There was some effect that at least potentially God's word could have had, but was not having, and they were defeating it 
because of their reliance on these traditions that had been handed down. And Jesus said, and many such things you do. So there's one example, Mark chapter seven, verse 13. Jesus himself spoke of making the word of God of no effect. In 1 Corinthians chapter nine, verse 12, Paul, the same one who spoke about the word of God not being chained, said this, if others are partakers of this right over you, are not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Again, the way Paul phrases that, there was at least the potential for Paul to hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, just understand this. In context, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul was writing about his right to be supported by those to whom he ministered. Paul speaks about that, and the Bible at large speaks about it in many places. That those who receive spiritual ministry, they have a right to support, at least in some way, those who bring the ministry to them. Now, Paul said, I have this right. Notice, if others partake of this right over you, are we not even more? Paul said, I have the right, Corinthians, to be supported by you. But Paul insisted, notice it's verse 12, it's so powerful. Nevertheless, we have not used this right. Paul would say that he had the right to be supported by those whom, to whom he ministered, but he would willingly set aside that right when it was better for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now that brings in a whole nother excellent question about should pastors, ministers be paid? Should they be supported? All that. But Paul would say they have the right, but it's not always advantageous to use that right. But notice the end phrase in verse 12, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Apparently, in some way, the gospel of Jesus Christ could be hindered by Paul's activity. And then I'll just read this to you from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul said this, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. I love this little exhortation to prayer that Paul gave the Thessalonians. Again, that passage is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. And this is what Paul simply says. He says, Thessalonians, I want you to pray that the word of God would have, I love the phrasing in the old King James, have free course and be glorified, would run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you. God's word did a wonderful work among you, dear Thessalonian brothers and sisters. Pray that it would continue to have that work among others. Now, the implication there is, if they did not pray, it wouldn't have the same effectiveness. And I'll just give you one more quick example on this end. The parable of the soils. Do you remember that? Jesus gave the parable of the man who went out to sow seed in the different types of soil. Sometimes we call that the parable of the sower. I think it's better applied as the parable of the soils. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 13, Mark chapter 4, Luke chapter 8. It sure seems like the seed of the word of God was hindered as it fell on the stony ground, or as it was eaten by birds, or as it was choked by the cares of this world. So all this that to say this. 
there are some passages of scripture that seem to tell us that there's nothing that can hinder the work of the word of God. There's other passages of scripture that seem to tell us that there's a way in which the word of God can be hindered and, and sometimes is hindered. So how do we take this? How do we understand this? Well, we, we understand that the Bible was written by a single author, God in heaven, and that it doesn't contradict itself. But we understand that there must be some sense in which both are true. Both are true. There is a sense in which God's word cannot be hindered. And there is a sense in which it would seem that we can hinder the work of God's word. Now, how do we understand this? Again, let me just come back to this idea. The Bible is God's word given from heaven, given from heaven, no doubt about it. But it is given to humanity on this earth. Most directly, we can say this. God didn't write the Bible for angels. I suppose angels read it, but he didn't write it for them. He wrote it for humanity. God's word is given from heaven, but for humanity. And sometimes the word of God speaks from a heavenly perspective, telling us how God sees things. Does that seem strange to you? It shouldn't seem strange to you. It's given from heaven. But sometimes also the Bible speaks to us from an earthly perspective, telling us how things appear to us. So from God's heavenly perspective, his plan is going to be worked out every step along the way and nothing is going to hinder it. From an earthly perspective, it sure appears to us, it seems to us that we have a real choice whether or not we will work with God's word or against God's word. And God wants us to have the perspective that from our heavenly, oh, excuse me, from our earthly viewpoint, what we say and do regarding the word of God matters. So in an ultimate sense, the work of God's word will always be accomplished. Yet from our perspective, what we do or do not do with God's word matters. It makes a difference. Brothers and sisters, we are never, I'll say it again to emphasize it, we are never to take the eternal unfolding certain plan of God and his sovereign ruler, we are never to take that in a fatalistic sense that would imply for a moment that therefore it does not matter what we do or do not do. We can hold both truths and we can learn and benefit from both truths. We take great confidence and we draw great peace from the truth of God's unstoppable word and work. But then we also realize that how we receive the word and how we pray for the work of God's word and how we present God's word really matters. Listen, if I'm going to preach to a group of people or if I'm going to preach to you, the, the YouTube audience, if I'm going to preach to you, the last thing I should do is say, hey, it's God's word. He's going to accomplish whatever purpose he wants. Who cares what kind of preparation I put into this? Who cares what kind of heart I put in this? God's word is going to do whatever he wants. No, 
That is a wicked frame of mind to adopt. How we receive the word, how we pray for the work of God's word, and how we present God's word really matters. God is sovereign over all things. He does as he pleases. But the picture we have from the Bible, from the Bible, but it's also from our life experience, but primarily from the Bible, the picture we have from the Bible is that it has pleased God to make a world where our choices, our actions actually matter. So take peace that in the big picture, God's word can never be hindered. But take responsibility that in the life God has placed right before us, it matters how you receive the word, how you present God's word, and how you pray for the work of God's word. Jessica, thanks for a great question. I think you can tell that I'm excited to talk about that. So having dealt with Jessica's question, let's go over to the chat window and just start going over piece by piece some of these questions that have come in. Jane asked the question, David, how are people, the people before Jesus, judged for heaven or hell? Jane, this is a great question. And it comes over to the very simple question of will God judge people for what they haven't heard? Now, before Jesus the only revelation of the Messiah was either either from God's word because the Old Testament, the Jewish people and the word that God revealed through the Old Testament prophets, that had so much to say about the Messiah that somebody could come to a saving anticipation of the person and work of the Messiah God would send through the Old Testament scriptures. And so they would have that opportunity through there. Other than that, the book of Romans tells us that God has revealed himself to humanity uh, through creation and through conscience. And God will judge people by how they have responded to him, by what he has revealed to him, to, to humanity, not by what he hasn't revealed to humanity. So there were people saved in anticipation uh, of the Messiah. But please understand this. When you ask that question, how are the people before Jesus judged for heaven and hell? Before the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, before he instituted the new covenant, there was no one who was saved by works alone. Nobody. It had to be by faith faith through God's provision in the Messiah that would come. There's nobody who's been saved by their own works ever. We are rescued in light of the work that Jesus the Messiah did as we look back to it. Before Jesus did that work, people were rescued by their faith in what the Messiah would do, looking forward to it. But it all centers at the cross. Jane, I hope that answers the question for you. It's not like God had one system of salvation before and another system of salvation after the cross. It's just that one looked forward to what the Messiah would do and the other looks forward back to what the Messiah 
has done. Christian asked the question, Hi, Pastor David. I've heard several church leaders say that God is in charge, but not in control. Is this statement biblically correct? <clears throat> Christian, as with many questions, that statement, God is in charge, but not in control, it really matters how a person defines that particular saying or question. And it really comes down to this. Um, what a person is trying to say in a question like that, I believe, is that God has a plan of the ages that he's in charge of and everything is going to reach its appointed end to the very end. Now, at the same time, God uh, does not have a meticulous control over every single event that happens. That's what they're trying to express through that statement. God is in charge, but not in control. I tell you what, I, I don't think I favor that statement. Um, I, I don't have a problem with God being in control, but God, as I said before, God is in control. He does as he pleases. And again, I said this in our opening question, but it has pleased God to make a world where our choices, our actions actually matter. God is in control, but as an expression and an incorporation of that control, somehow, and I believe there's an element of mystery here. I don't feel like I have to explain it. I just think it's true from the Bible that it doesn't eliminate the meaningful expression of our choices and our actions. So um, I think God is in charge and in control, but I, I think perhaps what people are trying to indicate through a statement like that is they're trying to maybe eliminate uh, an aspect of fatalism that some people have. I don't know. I think that's the best I can do with that there for you, Christian. All right, Jane says, um, I'm a little confused about the Millennium Kingdom. Who will live in it? Risen Christians. All right, Jane, let me address your question here. And again, I always preface my answers to questions about eschatology with a recognition that there are many different opinions about these things in the Christian world. And what I'm going to tell you is not like a universally accepted uh, opinion. Uh, it, it's my perspective. It's my sincere belief about what the Bible teaches. But there are other people who sincerely believe differently. So with that sort of caveat, this is my understanding. The citizens of the millennial earth, when Jesus establishes the millennial earth after his return, will be those people who have survived the great tribulation, survived Armageddon, and who have been approved by the judgment of the nations that Jesus described in Matthew chapter 25. They will be the sheep, not the goats. I believe that the judgment of the nations in Matthew chapter 25 does not describe those who will be destined for heaven or hell, but those who will be destined for hell or the millennial earth, those people who have survived the great tribulation and Armageddon. Those will be the citizens of the millennial earth. We, risen, resurrected, glorified believers, we will be present at the millennial earth, 
but as the servants of Jesus and as the administrators, the civil servants, if you want to use that phrase, of his kingdom. We will help Jesus rule over the citizens of the millennial earth. And again, I want to acknowledge this is not a universally held opinion among Christians. It's my perspective trying to make the best sense I can from the scriptural evidence. But I believe that that's it. We alive and we exist. Now, some people say, well, I wanted to be in heaven when I'm resurrected. I don't want to be on the millennial earth. Look, I, I believe that believers in their resurrection bodies will have free concourse, free travel, if you will, between heaven and the millennial earth. That you, you won't be excluded to only be on the millennial, but you'll, so to speak, work on the millennial earth. And then you'll also have access to heaven as well. Even as we believe that for the most part, angels have access, excuse me, <clears throat> between heaven and earth. So, Jane, that's the best way I could explain it. That we will be present at the millennial earth, but not as the citizens, rather as the co-regents, the civil servants of Jesus on the millennial earth. Okay, Tyler says, <clears throat> how can we apply Old Testament promises like Jeremiah 29, 11, Malachi 3, 10, 2 Chronicles 7, 14 to us today? Now, uh, Tyler, that's a great question. And the question you're asking are questions that were made fundamentally to uh, Old Testament Israel under their covenant. For example, Jeremiah 29, I know the thoughts, the plans I have for you, they're of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. That's Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Second Chronicles 7, 14, if my people will repent and will, you know, turn to me, then I will heal their land. I will restore their land. Uh, promises such as this, promises of national restoration and blessing if the people of God will return to him and promises of hope. These promises in the passages you've quoted, Jeremiah 29, 11, Malachi 3, 10, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Let's be clear. Those promises were originally made to Israel under the old covenant. In, complete, in a complete sense, they do not belong to believers yet. Don't stop there. They do belong to believers in this sense. The God who made those promises, the heart of that God to bless, respond, restore, um, bring blessing to his repentant and humbled people. That's the same God we serve. And I'll add this. If these were God's promises to Israel under the old covenant, should we expect less to believers now under the new covenant. Now, again, we're not trying to confuse national Israel with the nations on the earth today, such as the nation of America or the nation of Germany or the nation of New Zealand or the nation of Mexico or the nation of the modern state of Israel. Those aren't equivalent to Old Testament Israel. There's not an equivalence, but there is an analogy. So in other words, Taking that promise from 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people will repent, if they'll return, if they'll turn to me, I will bless them. I will heal their land. Are we to expect that God says to believers today, if the believers of a particular nation, again, pick any nation you want, 
the United States, Mexico, Germany, Sweden, uh, African nations, South Africa, Namibia, whatever. You take any nation you want. Are you trying to tell me that if the believers of that nation repent and get right with God, that God will say, well, well, forget it. That promise isn't for you. There will come blessing to any land where the believers truly repent and get right with God. Now, it won't be exactly the same as it was for national Israel, but we shouldn't expect God to be stingier under the new covenant than the abundance of his promises under the old covenant. So we just simply recognize, yes, it's true. These promises are not directly made to us today. They were made to Israel under the old covenant, but those promises show us something about the heart and nature of God and that's the God we serve today. And if you think God is more gracious, more generous under the new covenant than he was under the old. So again, I think, I think it's possible to take these promises in a wrong way. But one of the wrong ways that it's possible to take these promises, well, that's where Israel doesn't have anything to do with us. Yes, it has something to do for us. Not everything as it would be for Old Testament Israel, but certainly something. Tyler, I hope you can tell that's a question I'm kind of excited about. So I gave you that kind of answer. Okay, conservative writes this. Greeting Pastor Guzik. I was wondering what your opinion is on lordship salvation. From reading your work, I would assume you agree more with the lordship camp. On that assumption, aren't the free grace proponents preaching another gospel as mentioned by Paul? Another gospel could be either one and either in danger of damnation. Okay, uh, conservative, I would have to, what, what you'd have to do is put before me, you know, a careful explanation of what you title, because I've you're not the only one who uses this title, but I've heard this title before, the free grace position. If a person's position is this, that repentance has nothing to do with believing, saving faith then I would disagree with that. If somebody wants to completely separate, make an absolute separation between faith and repentance and say, say that somebody can have true believing, saving, converting faith and that has nothing to do with repentance, then I would strongly disagree with that. Um, I, I don't know if I like the term Lordship salvation. Look, I, I don't like a lot of terms that people use. Uh, I, I like Bible terms as much as possible. So Lordship salvation, free grace. Uh, listen, I, I, I'm not a fan of terms on either side, but I will say this. I am a big fan of repent and believe salvation. I'm a big fan of understanding that true faith in Jesus Christ, saving faith of Jesus Christ, will have an element of repentance to it. We're not saved by our repentance. And on this side of eternity, nobody repents perfectly, just as nobody believes perfectly on this side of eternity. But repentance is a true companion to saving faith. That's why the Bible frequently uses the, the terminology, repent and believe, repent and believe, believe and repent, believe and repent, because they are actually, I believe, 
two sides of the same coin. And um, they're two aspects of the same work. I can't truly turn to God without turning away from sin and self. The turning away is called repentance. The turning to is called faith. So that, that's how I would explain it. Um, and I would say that if there is an effort to completely separate faith and repentance, that is not a true gospel. That is, is actually uh, so confusing as to be dangerous what our proper response should be to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So I hope that helps you there, conservative. Jose says, can a couple that are not married be baptized or do they have to get married first and then be baptized? What does the Bible say about this? Your thoughts, please. Okay. Jose, it, th this is a question that I would kind of put in the category of a pastoral question. In other words, this is the kind of question that's best answered with a pastor or, or a mature, qualified believer, but I'll just say a pastor. I'm not saying that every uh, pastor, you know, only, only pastors can deal this way with people. Pastor sits down with the couple and talks to them and sees in detail where their life is at. Now, in general, and again, I'm speaking in general, how this general knowledge applies to specific situations needs to be done on a very personal basis. But in general, if you're speaking about a couple that's living together as, as if they were husband and wife, and when I say living together, I don't mean roommates. I mean, they're living together and, and having intimate relations as in marriage. If you're talking about a couple that's living together as if they're married, but they are not married, that couple should set that right in repentance and they should get um, baptized. They can set it right in repentance by getting married or they can set it right in repentance by uh, separating and no longer living together as if they were husband and wife. They should do that. And if they truly believe and have put their faith in Jesus Christ, they should be baptized. Both the repentance and the getting baptized are valid expressions of obedience. To obey Jesus means to obey what he says about sexual morality and about marriage. To obey Jesus means to do what Jesus has said about baptism. Just late last night, I got back from a pastor's conference that I did uh, in Oregon, uh, the city of Corvallis, Oregon, uh, the church Calvary Corvallis hosted it. God bless you, the good folks, the pastor at Calvary Corvallis and all those who put on that conference. And at this particular conference, we had it because of COVID-19 concerns. We had it outdoors and we did it with proper social distancing and protocols and all of that, which made for a bit of an unusual conference in that regard. But it worked better than you would think it might have worked. Well, this church in their outdoor amphitheater has what some other churches have had that I've seen in their outdoor amphitheater. They have a baptismal and both at Sunday morning and then even during the conference, there's an invitation given to people who should obey Jesus Christ and be baptized. I got to say, it's a pretty cool thing to have that right there at your amphitheater 
And uh, at the end of the service, people can get baptized because it is an act of obedience to Jesus Christ for believers to be baptized. So I would just say this, Jose, that it's consistent with obedience. Now, again, I just want to say that this is fundamentally a pastoral question. And, and you know, there, there is always, well, what about this? What about that? Those different aspects are best answered in a very personal way between a pastor and those particular people. Thank you for that question, Jose. Mary says, looking for a good resource to learn more about end times, dispensationalism, the rapture, etc. I'm new to all this and it's very confusing to me. Well, Mary, <laughs> I understand. Look, Mary, let me recommend to you something, a resource that I have. On my YouTube channel, you can find a video series that I did called God's Plan of the Ages. Go to that playlist on my YouTube channel and that'll take you not only the end times, but beginning from the beginning, uh, like the first part of that series is what God has done in the past. And then the second part of that series is what God is going to do in the future. And I think that's a great starting point for that. Um, but again, I, I think that's a great place to start. Um, and then let that lead you to other questions, other things. Uh, read just some good uh, biblical commentary. You could go to my website, EnduringWord.com, and look at what I have to say about Daniel chapter 9, uh, what I have to say about uh, Matthew chapter 24, and then other uh, people that, that, again, speak about these passages of Scripture that are relevant to eschatology. You could go through my audio series on the book of Revelation. Um, but again, there's other resources out there, but I, I really would recommend that you start with my series, God's Plan of the Ages. And again, I, I don't blame you for being somewhat confused. As I said before, eschatology is an area where Christians over the centuries have had disagreements. That's okay. Uh, what we need to be united on is a simple truth. Jesus Christ is coming again, and we need to be ready for his return. That is something that I hope every Christian can agree upon. Thanks there for that question, Mary, and God bless you. Uh, conservative says, how does a particular eschatological view determine the way we present the gospel if at all we does, if at all it does? Thank you. Okay, um, conservative says, again, how does a particular eschatological view? Well, what is eschatology? Eschatology is the study of the end times, of last things. Uh, what's going to happen at the very end? And concerned, I would just say this, that eschatology or our understanding of the last days should give us a greater passion and urgency for sharing the gospel and getting the good news out to people. I don't think our eschatological perspective, our end times viewpoint, if you want to use simpler language, I don't think our end times viewpoint determines the content of the gospel. The, the content of the gospel is, is simple and plain. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what he did for us at the cross and at the empty tomb, his resurrection, to atone for our sins and to make us right with God, all those who put their trust in him. That, that, that's sort of a informal statement of the gospel itself. Our understanding of the end times doesn't directly affect the gospel message, but it can and should affect 
our urgency in sharing that message. So that's the best way I'd answer that question there. Uh, Susanna says, who is the parable of the 10 virgins referring to? Well, Susanna, that's very interesting. And um, that's a question that basically, I'll just give you an off the cuff answer. You know, sometimes people ask me questions and I just sort of have an immediate answer, but there's there in the back of my mind, man, I wonder if I studied that a little more closely, if I would have a different opinion on that. Uh, so maybe I would, maybe if I studied it more closely, I'd have a different opinion, but Susanna, I'll give you my off the cuff answer. You're referring to a parable that I believe is in the gospel of Luke. I might be incorrect about that, but a parable about the return of Jesus and readiness for the return of Jesus. And I would just say this, that the parable of the 10 virgins speaks of the people of God in the broadest sense. Now, sometimes we refer to the people of God in a more narrow sense, meaning those who are actually born again, those who are actually, those whom God knows to be his. But sometimes we use the people of God in a broader sense, which is fine as long as we know what we're talking about. As being all those who would just, anybody who would lay claim to being in God's family. No, you know this, don't you? Susanna, everybody out there? Not everybody who claims to be right with God is right with God. Do we understand that together? Not everybody who claims to uh, uh, be a Christian is a Christian. So I believe that the parable of the 10 virgins refers to the people of God in the broadest sense. Those who lay claim to being the people of God. Those who claim to be Christians. And of those, some of them will be ready for the return of the Messiah, the bridegroom. Some of them will not. So th that would be my off-the-cuff answer, Susanna. Maybe if I went back to the past and spent more time, I might have a different answer for you. But that's the one I can give you here on a live question and answer on a Thursday afternoon. Thank you for that. Ed says... How does the Bible explain dinosaurs? Well, Ed, I would just say this, um, not in as much detail as we wish it did, uh, but let me just say this. Obviously, if God created everything, then dinosaurs were part of that creation. If dinosaurs are no longer on the earth today, which apart from movies like Jurassic Park and all the rest, I think we can say pretty categorically, dinosaurs are not on the earth today. Uh, then at some time they became extinct. When they became extinct, we don't exactly know. Uh, and the Bible doesn't have much to say on it. Uh, were they extinct before the flood? Maybe. Were they extinct after the flood? Maybe so. W we don't have answers from this. But all we can say from a biblical perspective is yes, since we believe dinosaurs existed, the skeletons and all the rest are pretty good evidence that they existed. Um, they were part of God's creation, and at some time they became extinct. Before the flood, perhaps, maybe some species did not. Maybe the, maybe the dinosaurs were a almost dead species before the flood. Uh, maybe a few dinosaurs, maybe dinosaur, uh, please don't make this seem silly. Maybe dinosaur babies were on, you know, they didn't have to be huge creatures, were on the ark. And maybe they perished, the last remaining ones perished very quickly in the world after. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. So we can't say categorically. But we can say that they were part of God's creation. 
And at some time, they simply became extinct. It is amazing to see the glory and the wonder of God's creation, even in species that are now extinct. Amazing. So I, really, that's all we can say. Ed, much beyond that is just simply speculation. And it's fine for people to speculate about this or that having to do with uh, the Bible and archaeology and uh, paleontology and all the rest. Of it. It's fine for people to speculate as long as we know they're speculating. And OK, well, fine. You can have your speculation. I can have mine. And, and we'll just kind of figure it out along the way. OK, next question here comes from Z, or maybe I should say from Myers. Can you expand on the command to be fruitful and multiply? Many Christians I know believe it's a sin to limit the number of children you have or space them out how you would prefer. Basically, they believe you should have as much children as possible, if you can biologically, and they use this verse to justify uh, and on that subject, is it a sin for a Christian couple to not have any children if they prefer that? Appreciate all you do, Pastor David. Well, Myers, let me just say that we have a general command that we should be fruitful and multiply. The Bible doesn't give us specific numbers, specific, uh, you know, um, uh, strategies for being fruitful and multiply. And of course, I'm not talking about the, the strategy of how babies are made, but how they should be spaced out or anything like that. It just simply gives us a general command. And with that general command, I believe that it is up to each individual married couple before God to understand what that command means for them. I do think that if people do not have children out of fear. And again, I'm not talking about um, physical fear. I mean, I, listen, and this is another situation where th there are so many potential variations on this. Uh, someone has a physical problem and it would be very dangerous for them. I, I just remember hearing the other day about a couple and the woman had some kind of um, deformity of the spine that you wouldn't tell just by looking at her, but she had some kind of deformity of the spine that made it very dangerous for her to bear children. And so this really affected how many children they thought they could have. So I'm not talking about fear having to, I'm talking about fear having to do with financial fear, fear having to do with the practicalities of life, fear having to do with where the world is going, all this. I don't think that those kind of fears should hinder how many children a family should have. I don't think that the desire for comfort or convenience should hinder how many children a family should have. I think that filtering out those things, it is as many things as the Bible does not give a specific instruction. Yes, we have a general command, but we don't have specific instruction. Therefore, it's up to each individual uh, married couple to seek that between God and themselves. And you know what? God may speak to one couple differently than another. Praise the Lord. God gives different conscience to different believers concerning these things. And if a believer comes to me and says, my conscience tells us that we should use no birth control, that we should absolutely have as many 
babies as God might possibly give my wife. And if that's 15, then it's going to be 15. Praise the Lord. And if they say that God is person, I say, praise the Lord, brother, you go forward and and uh, and pursue what God has told you. If another couple says, uh, no, we believe that God wants us to have a certain number of children and space them out of a certain way. I, I would want to make sure that they're not doing that for an ungodly reason. Uh, but actually for a godly, but if they feel that's their conscience, God, I don't think we can speak against, because again, we have a general command, but not a specific command on how that should be worked out. In general, I think Christians should have a lot of kids in general. Why? Well, because Christians should be good parents and people who be good parents and raise good and godly children in this world it's better for the world if they have more babies than fewer. And uh, the future of the world belongs to those who will have babies. There are disturbing demographic trends that have been in work in the Western world and beyond the Western world for some time. And uh, the future belongs to those who will have babies. So I guess that's the best way I can answer this question. Number one, allowing that there are many specific dynamics that may apply to a particular marriage or situation. In general, we have this command, but because we don't have a specific command, I believe it's up to each individual couple how they would understand how God would want them to fulfill the command. That's the best answer I would make. I, I do not agree with people who would say, I would respectfully disagree that it's a universal sin for every Christian to use birth control. If someone feels convicted of that for their own life, God bless them and, and they should go for it as they please. But I, I don't believe that we have enough biblical, you know, data, so to speak, to be able to say that it's a universal command. Okay, I hope that helps you there, Myers. Let me go on. I'll just get a few more questions here. It looks like we're kind of running... I don't think I'll get to everything. West says, hello, good to see you on another Thursday. Thank you. What are the differences in the baptism in Jesus' name and the baptism in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost? Thanks so much for what you're doing for the kingdom. Well, West, you're very welcome. Let me give you my understanding on this. This is something that some Christian groups have divided about greatly. Because in one place in the scriptures, it says, uh, mentioning about baptism in the name of Jesus. And then in another place, it says baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, my mind doesn't immediately tell me which chapter and verse, but I know in one place it speaks of baptism in the name of Jesus, another place in baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there are some groups who have said that only one of those formulas is valid. And again, I again, I'm, I'm doing this off the cuff. So I can't remember which one that people usually champion. I think it's, you have to be baptized in the name of, if you were not baptized in the name of Jesus, you're not really baptized. So if somebody says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're not truly baptized. The formula has to be, you're baptized in the name. I think that this is making strange things out of word formulas. But I will say this, whenever I baptize somebody, this is what I say. I say, in whatever words I may say before or pray for them before, when it actually comes down to putting them under the water, I say this, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
I baptize you in the name of Jesus. And then I put them under the water. That way I figure if anybody comes back to them later and says, well, what name were you baptized into? All their bases are covered. So that's how I do it when I baptize people. You want to be safe. You could say that just so that somebody can't come along later and hassle them. But again, the power of baptism is not in the word formula that's used as if it's some magic incantation. It's in what baptism illustrates that is the cleansing of sin and new life in Jesus Christ being buried with Jesus in water and coming up out of the water. The power of baptism is in the spiritual reality that it illustrates. It's in the declaration that it provides and that it is it as an expression of obedience and faith in Jesus Christ. These are the things that express the power of baptism. It's not in a uh, particular word formula that's used. All right, uh, I'm kind of wearing out here, so I'm going to take one more question from Jennifer, although I want to say blessings and greetings to you all. Kristana, Caden, Ruth, hello. Nice to see you again. Conservative again. Let me just deal with this last question from Jennifer, and I'll save the rest of the questions for later. It says this. Uh, Jennifer asks, blessings, pastor. If some people died during the millennial kingdom, do you think there will be cemeteries? And where do they go when they die? What do you think? Thank you for addressing this. Okay, Jennifer, again, let me say that uh, your question's fine, but it involves some measure of speculation. Again, which is fine. We just want to recognize when we're standing on firm scriptural ground and when we're just trying to figure out by things that the scriptures suggest. So this is what we know. The Bible says that during the millennium, there will be death. People will die. They will die at a much later age. Just sort of a restoring of the strength and the vitality of the earth in a pre-flood aspect. But people will die. I suppose people will be buried. And I believe that they would go to judgment after their death. Uh, the Bible speaks of Hades, the place where people go before the final judgment, being in existence until the judgment. So I would say this, and again, I'm speaking off the hand here, so maybe I'd give a different answer if I considered it later with more time. I would say this, that believers who die, because not every citizen of the earth will necessarily be a believer on the earth during the millennium. Those who help govern the earth will be resurrected believers, but the citizens of the earth will have a choice to believe or not. If a person is a believer during the millennium, they'll go to heaven, just as any other believer. They'll be resurrected and go to heaven. If a person is not a believer, they'll go to Hades and await the final judgment, much as we would say is the case right now. Again, you're asking questions that we wish the Bible told us more about, but doesn't. So we just do the best we can with the data that we have. Um, okay. That's going to be it for today. Thank you for the many questions. I'm sorry about the questions that I couldn't get to, but I'm so pleased to be able to join you today for the questions that I can get to. And, uh, I expect to be back with you, God willing. And if we live next Thursday, thank you for the likes, you know, clicking the thumbs up. Thank you for the subscriptions, all the rest of it. I guess we're supposed to say that, but look, I'm just grateful for everybody who, participates right alongside with this work that we do. 
very grateful for those who help to support the work in their prayers and in their donations. God's doing some great stuff and uh, I'm very grateful for it. So thanks. Join me again this next Thursday. Blessings to you and thanks for joining me today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.